Tonight is the 28th day of Nisan, even though tonight's actually the 29th day of Nisan. But in holy things, the Torah tells us that uh, the night follows the day. So therefore, there's a connection today to the 28th day of Nisan. The 28th day of Nisan, of course, is a famous time when 30 years ago, Rebbe said that I've done all I can to bring Mashiach, and now I'm giving this over to you. Everyone should do whatever they can to bring Mashiach. One of the words that we used at that famous talk was that everyone needs to be stubborn, stubborn to bring Mashiach. And on that note, I want to share with you an incredible story. Uh, it's about three lives converging over many, many decades. And uh, it's, it's, you'll see how this story is really a fundamental to understanding a lot of things, uh, not only this talk of the Rebbe about doing everything we can to bring Mashiach, but let's get right to it. There was a woman named Margaret, or Marguerite Kazanchajas. She was originally from uh, uh, Austria, and she visited Austria uh, when she was 85 years old, and she went to see Rabbi Biederman, who was a Chabad emissary there in Austria. And she said to him this, this funny thing. She said, you think you're the first emissary of Chabad here in Austria. But really, she said, I was the first shliach of the Rebbe to Austria. The Rebbe sent me here many years ago. So he was intrigued. What are you talking about? So basically, she comes from the, the um, Vizhnitz dynasty, the Hager family. The Vizhnitz Rebbe's last name is Hager. Her mother's maiden name was Hager, and she's from the city of Trinowitz. She was a very gifted singer, opera singer, and she actually would go to um, the Salzburg Festival, the Festspiel. Every year they would make a festival in the... Um, hometown of Amadeus Mozart to celebrate Mozart's music and she would sing in the opera. When the uh, war broke out, I'm sorry, not before the war broke, broke out, in March 12, 1938, in the Anschluss, and uh, the, uh, the Salzburg Festival was graced by Rachman uh, Otsland, by Hitler Yimachshamay, and of course none of the Jewish singers were allowed to be there. But for some reason, I guess because she was so incredibly gifted, she actually performed in front of Hitler Yimachshamay. Originally, the uh, Viennese Philharmonic was uh, was meant to conclude their their uh, series of 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 presentations on September first. But they stopped early, uh, ostensibly because the, the orchestra was going to perform for the Nuremberg Convention. But the real, the real reason was because Germany had, uh, was deceiving the world. They actually began World War II um, then in August. So she uh, was at this, at this uh, concert and she sang. And that very night, she escaped with her husband, uh, to Italy, and from Italy, they took a the last boat that left uh, that left Europe before the war. Um, they 
they uh, they took and they managed to um, to come to the United States safely. They moved to Detroit, and in Detroit, she started this society for the music of Mozart, Mozart's music, and the people called her Mrs. Mozart. Anyways, her daughter got married to a doctor who was a supporter of various Chabad institutions, and because of his support, uh, she was invited to a private audience with the Rebbe in 1959. She lost, during the war, most of her family, and a lot of survivors, after losing so much, they have a very hard time crying, because they're afraid if they start crying, they'll never finish crying. So she had never cried after, after the war. When she came to the Rebbe's room, she suddenly felt like she could tell the Rebbe anything. And she started telling the Rebbe about all of her, what she had lost, and what had happened to her, what had changed. And she felt like the Rebbe adopted her as a daughter. She felt like she really could express to the Rebbe all that's going on in her heart. And she poured it all over out to the Rebbe. The Rebbe listened to her. And uh, she told the Rebbe that she wants to go back to Vienna. She wants to go back to her hometown. And the Rebbe said to her, before you go back, I want you to visit me again because I want to ask you to do me a favor for your when you go back to Vienna. So she does. She comes back to the Rebbe before she, she travels to Vienna. And then he says to her, I want you to do two favors for me when you get to Vienna. One is, please go to my secretary. I have some literature and regards I want to send to uh, Rabbi Kiva Eisenberg, who was the chief rabbi then of, of, uh, of Vienna. I want you to um, give, I have his address, and I want you to bring some, some books and some regards, and my regards to Rabbi Akiva Eisenberg. And the second thing I want to ask you to do, I don't have the address for this, but I want you to find the address. I want you to get in touch with a certain professor there named Viktor Frankl. And I want you to tell Viktor Frankl that his work that he's doing is very important. And if he, ha- he should he have complete resolve, he should stay strong and no matter what, he's going to continue doing his work and he will see great success. And I told her a long message exactly what to tell Viktor Frankl. This... Um, this story has been said in many different occasions in different ways, but this is the authentic version that has been well-researched. Everything I'm telling you is well-researched. Well um, she comes to Vienna. She goes to the uh, Polyclinic of Neurology where Professor Viktor Frankl was, was, uh, used to give lectures there. And, but he hadn't shown up for weeks. He wasn't around. And she decided to veer from being so polite as in, in Vienna, you know, you don't go to someone's house, but she had this mission from the Rebbe and, and, and she wanted to do it. So she searched and she found out his private address. It wasn't easy. And uh, sure enough, she finds the address and she comes to, to, the, um, to his private home. What she discovered later was that there was this. This was something very providential. The, the, the Rebbe's mission to her, with, to her at this time, was very providential. There's a reason why they were sent at this exact moment, as you'll see. Uh, he was having, having a very hard time being a professor there, and what is what? But I'll get to that in a minute. She comes to the house, and she she sees as soon as she opens the door of the house, there's a big Christian symbol in the house, and she was shocked, like. The Rebbe sent her to this, to this uh, house. What is, why would she be... Whose house is this? Who is this Victor Frankl? She thought for sure it was the wrong house, but actually, Victor Frankl married a second wife who was not Jewish, a devout Catholic, Catholic 
1947. Her name was Eleanor Catherine. Uh, and she walks in and she says, I'd like to speak to Professor Frankel. He, he, he uh, says, yes, how can I help you? It's very cold. But she said, there's a rabbi in New York, in Brooklyn. He told me I should visit you and give him, give him your, his regards and tell you that the work you're doing is very important. Don't fall into despair. Be strong and you will achieve great success. When she said that to him, all of a sudden he began to cry. And she said, he said to her, the rabbi knew exactly when to send you. And she told this whole story to Rabbi Biederman, the rabbi's emissary there to, uh, to Vienna. And he wanted to find out about this because he did indeed receive a check every year from Viktor Frankl. When they first moved to um, Vienna, when they were sent to the rabbi, the rabbi to Vienna, they sent out Jewish calendars to everyone that they could, including Viktor Frankl, and he would send back a check every year. And, and he never came, he, was not, he had no connection to the Jewish community, he didn't come to the shul, even on Yom Kippur, and he was surprised by it. And, he, and after hearing this story from her, he decided to call up Viktor Frankl himself. He called Viktor Frankl, and he says to him, do you remember getting regards from the Lavitcher Rebbe in 1959? And Viktor Frankl told Rabbi Biederman, I remember very well. He said that I, I'm internally indebted. I owe the Rebbe a huge debt of thanks. And he didn't know who he was speaking to. He didn't realize he was speaking to, to the Rebbe's emissary in Vienna. He says, and they have, they've opened up a branch here in Vienna. And you should support them. I support them too. That's what Viktor Frankl is saying. Um, let me tell you a little bit about what he was doing. I personally um, visited uh, many people in prison. I'll never forget my first exposure to Viktor Frankl's amazing work. I was, there was a certain American general, Jewish American general, who was imprisoned in, in one of these uh, federal facilities that I would visit. And he's a very intelligent person. But he was very down. It's not an easy place to be to remain positive in jail. But he, when I visited him one day, he was so happy, so excited. And he said to me, the reason his mood has changed is because he read Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. What Viktor Frankl was, was trying to do was to fight against the current position of psychologists at the time. Psychology, invented by uh, Sigmund Freud, believed a lot in physiology, which means that a person's like, sort of like a machine, and your mood has a lot to do with, with uh, you know, the circumstance and your body, and, and your, 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 your mind and your heart are, are, are predictable. And, and he, because of his experience in Auschwitz, he's a Holocaust survivor, lost most of his family. In Auschwitz, he, he had a different perspective. He said in Auschwitz, we saw people who were acting like animals. We saw the Nazis. But we also saw how people gave away the last bit of bread to help another person. We saw people acted beyond being human. How people were so... And he said the deepest need of a human being is his search, is his need to be, have, find meaning. He says, Victor Frankl said he remembers how he had opportunity before the war to come to America and write his books in America. And he was thinking, should he leave his parents in Austria, go to America... And one day, the Nazis had burned down a shul, and he saw they brought his, in this t- kitchen table, there was a part of this, this stone in this house. What was it? 
It was a replica of the Ten Commandments, and it was a part of the stone that his father had managed to rescue from the fire, uh, the, this stone which said, honor your father and mother. When he saw that, he decided, I'm not going to leave them. He's, he's going to stay in Austria, and he stayed there uh, dur- during the war, and he went, ended up going to a concentr- concentration camp, and that's where he discovered that Freud wasn't right. But in the 40s and 50s, Freud was considered to be, you know, you can't, in, in, the, in the academic world of Vienna, arguing with Freud was, was, uh, was a big, <laughs> it was like arguing with Hashem. And they, they, all the students and, and the professors ridiculed him. Viktor Frankl told um, Rabbi Biederman that I could withstand the, the, the concentration camps, but I could not withstand the derision I got from my college and students, colleagues and students about what, my, what I was saying. They were, they were speaking so derisively about me. They, said, they were putting me down so much. I was thinking, it can't, I must be doing the wrong thing. And I decided to move to Australia. Victor Frank got a sister in Australia. And I was going to leave. And I was in the middle of putting together my, my resignation papers from the from university. I'm done with this university. And that's when this rabbi, this lady comes in. She, uh, this, and she has this message from the Rebbe for me. And the message is, your work is important. Have firm resolve in what, in what you're doing. Don't let go. And uh, th- this is what gave him the wherewithal to, th- to tear up his resignation paper and to stay on a university and to do his work. He later published Man's Search for Meaning, which has been since translated into 28 languages. Victor Frankl uh, passed away in, in, the, uh, to, in the 2000s. And in his lifetime... It was ready. It was it was printed. Ten million copies of his book were sold. He sold. He spoke in over two hundred nine universities all over the world. And um, the interesting thing: there was a, a a Jew named Clive Cohen who lived in New Jersey, and he had many questions about psychology. And uh, the Rebbe, in general, said that said, you don't have to go to a psychologist who is against Hashem, and, and psychologists are recognized that, be, that believing in Hashem is not something that hurts a person; it's something that builds a person. And uh, so Clive Cohen asked the Rebbe about the various contradictions he saw between religion and, and psychology. The Rebbe said to him he should correspond with Viktor Frankl. The Rebbe actually said, and you could tell him in my name, which, which indicates that the Rebbe had a, a relationship with him. And tell him in my, if you need to, use my name to, to uh, get you through the door and, and for, for the correspondence with him. So here is... Um, by the way, Viktor Frankl himself, uh, it is a Dr. Cowan from Melbourne, Australia, who did a lot of research on Viktor Frankl's life, and he spoke to his um, his son. Okay, and he this, and he said that although his father uh, wasn't religious, but he spoke to his widow as well, and he discovered that he had a pair of tefillin. And he wouldn't want to be disturbed. Every day he would, he would daven, he would not, he would travel around the world, he would always take his film with him. He made himself a pair of tzitzis. He had tzitzis in film, and he would daven every single day. He wasn't religious, but every day before going to sleep, he would say to Helen. So there was something, he definitely had a strong connection. The point is that uh, his work really is the, is the source of many, many um, of the self-help books and psychology, psychology books you find throughout, throughout the world, like Stephen Covey's famous um, Seven Habits uh, is based on, on Victor Frankl's work and so are many, many other books. But the point is, as the Rebbe said, 
So you have to be strong and be successful. In a similar way, in this talk of Chavchas Nisan, the Rebbe began saying that the 27th of Nisan, the word 27 in Hebrew, number 27 is related to the word Zach, which means pure and clear. The Rebbe said when you have clarity, it gives you strength. So on that note, we have to have clarity. As the Rebbe said, that our generation is the last generation of exile. It's a generation which will actually greet Mashiach. Then we have to have the strength, as the Rebbe said, do all we can to make it happen, because when you have clarity, you have the strength. You have the clarity, you know where you are in history, what you need to do, then it gives you the strength to uh, actually go out and do it. So Hashem should help us all, we should do that, be, be stubborn, and it's demand of Hashem to bring Mashiach, and demand of ourselves to do more, and we should see Mashiach Tzakeinu, we should go to Shalayim and HaKadosh, the base of Migdash, tonight, take me a mamish. A good vach, Yudah. Gvach Charles, Gvach David, Gvach Rebel. Any questions or comments or criticism? All right. Listen. Yes, Yuda. When you said Zach Kavzain, if you look at the calendar, every day from the middle of the month, when the moon starts going down, down, every day has a meaning, like for example, Kavchet day, Koach. Or if you go, every day has the meaning of uh, the days. Yes. Shkech. All right, a good work, Surus Tevis. Except for Chavtes, Chavtes doesn't have.